If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Winograd. I am excited. This is an episode that I've been looking forward to since uh, last year, actually, when I reached out to our guest. As many of my listeners know, I've been on a kick lately on covenant theology and dispensationalism and figuring out how that relates to what's going on today in terms of current events and the church's role in all that, especially as it pertains to Israel and things going on in the Middle East and what our response should be to these different subjects. And as I was doing my own studies and looking into the subject, I happened across a YouTube channel that had a playlist entitled Debunking Dispensationalism. And that was such a fantastic listen. I think I binged, watched all 10 episodes in a matter of a couple days. And then I was like, I need to reach out to this man and have him on because I just... And then since then, I've gone on to listen to other things that you produced as well. So that is our guest for today. His name is Pastor Tommy McMurtry. So Pastor, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing excellent. Appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to have you. So as I said in my brief introduction there, I discovered you and your YouTube channel when I was just Googling things and trying to... Really, I was trying to find arguments from dispensationalists and trying to hear what they had to say. And then I found one of your like rebuttals and whatnot and just really enjoyed getting into it and listening to it. And then, of course, you have a, an expansive YouTube channel and then a podcast I think you started recently as well called the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. Right. So, And then you're a pastor, so you got a lot going on. Why don't you go ahead and give us and, and the audience here a little bit more in terms of just introduction to who you are, your background, and what you do with your YouTube channel and podcast. Yeah, I've been pastoring the Liberty Baptist Church in Rock Falls for 12 years now. I've been independent fundamental Baptist my whole life. I grew up in a pastor's home. Ministry is pretty much all I know. I love it, and I've always enjoyed preaching from the very first service. I always recorded our sermons, and I used to just do audio. That was all we had. I've always been a little behind the times on technology, but then we eventually added the video aspect of it and then went to YouTube. I think I started that in 2015. Yeah, and then eventually the YouTube channel kind of started taking off, and it was around that same time, too, where I had changed my position on eschatology, on the rapture, on Israel, and things like that. And honestly, I had a goal. My goals were not lofty. When I started YouTube, it was kind of a pain uploading the sermons all the time. I thought I'd like to get 100 subscribers and get like at least 50 views on every video. That was kind of <laughs> my goal. I found out there's a lot of people out there that really want to hear the truth on this subject. And I put a lot of work into my preaching. And so 
I've always liked having an archive of it that other people can listen to if they come into the church later, if other people want to listen to it. And then sometimes too, I need a refresher. So I have notes on every sermon I have ever preached in our church, pretty much anywhere. I save all my notes. I use them for reference because I just, I, I can't just keep everything in my head typically. But yeah, so I guess that's one of the reasons I wanted to put things online. I like having archives of all these things. And so, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. You've certainly touched on a lot of different subjects beyond just dispensationalism. Actually, before we get into the meat of today's discussion, and this actually it somewhat relates to it, but you actually also have another series that you did critiquing Calvinism. And I kind of loosely identify as, a, I mean, I don't like using like the label, like I'm a Calvinist because like really like I'm a Christian and I don't like, I worship Jesus, not Calvin. But I, I definitely would say my soteriology and theology probably more fit into like the reformed worldview, broadly speaking. I'm a big R.C. Sproul guy and like in your ministries, things like that. And you had a series critiquing Calvinism. And even though obviously I, I listened to it, have some disagreements, one, I could tell that you were actually trying to accurately represent Calvinism, that you would actually, as much as you had researched dispensationalism, you researched the doctrines of grace and tulip and things like that. And we're approaching the subject from a place of wanting to have a good faith conversation with fellow believers. And then how this relates to today's topic is, one, I'm not bringing on a fellow Calvinist and we're not just having like a little Calvinist echo chamber where we just agree on everything. So, I mean, it's not quite enemy at a station, but there is something to that, that it's not just a, because I get that sometimes as a rebuttal towards me. It's just, oh, you're just a Calvinist and Calvinists believe in covenant theology. And so you're just blinded to the truth of the Schofield Bible and <laughs> dispensationalism and all that. But not only do I have someone with you here today who is different from me on some of these views, you actually come from, I guess, like the part of Christianity where at least stereotypically people would most often assume you would be in the dispensationalist camp. And you even said yourself, you probably, I guess, used to somewhat be there and then had a changing in your views. And so I think that's, I think that's useful, right? We should all try to recognize our own biases and, and ways in which we can be influenced in our ways of thinking. And so when we can hear arguments from people who don't share our worldview, when we obviously share a lot, I mean, we agree on the gospel, we believe on... We agree more than we disagree, but it's still helpful, I think, to have someone like yourself on and to have that contrast there. So to dive into the main topic of today, ever since October 7th happened, which was, of course, a horrible terrorist attack, and I know neither you nor me was happy to see the loss of life that happened that day in Israel. But ever since then, the response in American politics and global politics and from Christian church has kind of been in the view of, well, this is all part of the upcoming end times and the church needs to be supportive of Israel to a fault and encouraging our government to be supportive of Israel to a fault because this is all part of biblical prophecy. And so the discussion of dispensationalism and, and eschatology has become one, I think that's become very important again in terms of what people are talking about in theological circles and, and whatnot within Christianity. So I want to start out by, and obviously we're going to have links to your YouTube channel and to the full playlist that you did. And I highly recommend people watch that after they, they listen to us here. Can you go into, as you 
briefly mentioned, how you started to move away from dispensationalism? What led you down that path of questioning it? And then what answers were you coming up with that were challenging that sort of dispensationalist view that a lot of Baptists and just Christians in general have adopted here in America? Yeah, so when it comes to dispensationalism, I didn't even know that word until my first semester of Bible college. So it wasn't something that was talked about a lot growing up, but we were pre-trib and we were pro-Israel. And it was just, it wasn't even a question. Of course we support Israel. Of course we're pre-trib. I didn't know there was a such thing as anything else. And so whenever we started Bible college, one of the first classes we did was on dispensationalism. We used Clarence Larkin's book, Dispensational Truth. And as we were going through it, my dad was teaching the class and he was constantly, now we don't believe this. We don't believe this. We disagree with this part. It was like he was constantly correcting it. And so it was one of those deals where, thankfully, I knew not to blindly follow everything I read in the book. But ultimately, I was told we're dispensational because we're just supposed to be dispensational. I mean, obviously, we're not supposed to sacrifice animals anymore. How do we explain that? Well, dispensationalism. And I don't know you, your theology and all that kind of stuff. But I do know a lot of people in the Reformed world, they've just been kind of told that they're supposed to be reformed. This is what most churches are, but you don't have to be. And it's the same thing too with dispensationalism. You don't have to be dispensational. There's better ways to explain prophecy. There's better ways to explain salvation. We don't have to use these things and these systems are very flawed. And so it was one of those deals though, where I learned some things, but one of the things fortunately I was taught was for one, My dad said, we do not believe in the dispensation of grace or the age of grace. My dad said, we would call it the church age. We believe it's always been grace. And so that was something that he immediately said, we do not buy into that. When it got to the part where there were the multiple gospels, we believe one gospel. So it was almost like, why are we even using it? But it's Mm. just, everyone tells you you're supposed to be dispensational. And so almost everybody that's IFB is dispensational to a a certain extent. So for myself, I just, I never really questioned a lot of it until I started pastoring and we were going to have our charter service on our one year anniversary. So we were kind of like a satellite for one year. And I was during the Sunday school hour, I was going through our statement of faith and I was just letting the church know, Hey, on this date, we're having a charter service. We're going to have a statement of faith and bylaws and all these things. And we're going to organized as a church. And so if you want to be a member of this church, just understand this is what the church believes. So now is the time to ask questions about any of these doctrines and things. And so I had two different people, two older men that just sincerely had questions when we got to the pre-trib stuff. You know, neither of these guys had like strong IFB backgrounds. One went to a church that was Baptist and the pastor considered himself mid-trib and it was very similar. The other one he told me one day, I was just reading Matthew 24 and I said, after the tribulation, and I was just like, and so I, I gave these guys an explanation that I just felt really bad about. I'm like, I got to do better than that. And so that started the process. And long story short, it was after three years. I noticed I had a lot going on. Well, starting a church and everything, but it was a three year process from the time I was like, man, this is not, I'm not making a good case to this is wrong. And that was a big thing for me when I finally accepted the fact that dispensationalism 
is false, that it is a bad system of theology. Because I was trying to force the scriptures somehow to fit mm-hmm. with some semblance of dispensationalism. Many people do that in the reform world too. I know people who, when it comes to the tulip, they've been told the doctrines of grace is the tulip. They've twisted the tulip almost to the point where they're preaching yeah. the gospel. Right. And it's just like, you know what? Sometimes it's best just to throw out those systems and start all over. You don't need the tulip. You don't need dispensationalism. There's ways to explain these things without these man-made terms and using just biblical language. And sometimes you do. I, I know we ought to learn from others, but at the end of the day, their systems are flawed many times. And sometimes yeah. you just, you've got to put in the work yourself. And I did. And it was when I admitted dispensationalism as false, I felt like I broke through a brick wall that just opened up so many scriptures that I never even thought there was anything to learn. It's like, man, there's so much here. And so, yeah, it was a big deal, but I'm glad I finally came around. Yeah. No, I actually agree with your sentiment there, even when it, not just how it applies to dispensationalism, but it also, yeah, I think that is a fair criticism of Reformed theology. I think other systematic theology can do this too, but definitely it's, especially if you're like on social media and you run into like Calvinists and hyper-Calvinists on Twitter and social media, if you just got, like if you didn't know anything about theology and just judged a system of theology based on the fruits of the people who you encountered, I mean, you would not have any reason to sincerely look into Calvinism. So there definitely is a problem when we, with anything, if we're being led by a system and not by starting from kind of first principles by what the Bible says and trying to wrestle with that with the guidance of the Holy Spirit through a hermeneutic that is Christ-centered and not system-centered, I mean, we're both Protestants, right? I mean, I think that was, if there's anything that unites the Protestant movement or Reformation, broadly speaking, is that we said we need to, the idea of sola scriptura is that like, we need to interpret the Bible through a lens of itself, not through the Catholic church, not through Tulip, not through the Schofield Bible, right? There's so many different ways where we can, and, and not that systematic theology can be useful in its proper place, maybe, to help explain complex parts of scripture, I think. But it should always be secondary in terms of where we rank it in terms of its importance. And we should always be willing to question systematic theology, but you know, rest on the scripture as our final authority. So I agree with a lot of what you're saying there. So as I mentioned, you have 10 videos in this series that are aimed at debunking dispensationalism. Now, we're obviously not going to have time to get to all 10 of them. And really, I want people to, after they've listen to this, go to your channel and, and, and watch those for themselves. But as a sort of preview and to kind of dive into what I think are three of the most crucial elements here that I, I'd like to talk about with you, because you did a very good job of unpacking them. I want to talk about three out of those 10. We have the issue of rightly dividing scripture. We have the issue of the church and Israel. And then the issue of what you already alluded to, multiple gospels. I guess the caveat here at the beginning which I think you did this several times in your series. And then you got to a point where you were like, I'm done doing caveats. Like just, but you were like, listen, I understand that there's like different types of dispensationalism and some people don't believe in this and that. So, I mean, there's no way we can anticipate every different variant. But in general, I think at least like classical and the majority of dispensationalists would believe in the things we're talking about here. So 
with that brief caveat out of the way, let's start out with the rightly dividing. This is something you hear dispensationalists talk about a lot, that we're not rightly dividing the scripture, which they're getting this from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So they use this to basically justify they're big. When you ever you watch a dispensationalist on YouTube, they have something in the background behind them that's like this giant timeline with all these lines and labels, and it's split up into these different sections. And they're like, you have to divide the scripture and then divide these different dispensations. And they use this passage as a sort of proof text for that argument. So, can you briefly here uh, for the audience here explain where they are in error in terms of both with the idea of dividing into these dispensations and then also how they're misusing scripture in terms of first Timothy chapter two. Yes. So anybody that watches those videos needs to understand that they are specifically geared towards independent fundamental Baptist dispensationalists because that's the world I came from. So I'm sure there's probably other dispensationalists out there that it might not completely apply to them, but in the world that I came from, what they will often do because you can't find the thief in the night left behind story line that people tell where people walk along one day, just banished clothes, drop to the ground. You can't find that in the scriptures. You can't find a preacher of rapture in the scriptures. There's no clear place anywhere in the Bible that outlines what these people are talking about. But you got to have scripture when you're teaching something. And so what they always do, and I showed examples on that video, they start with 2 Timothy 2.15, right? Study to show thyself proven to God, or when need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And they have claimed that that means dispensationalism, that dividing means you've got to divide the Bible up into dispensations. And it's just like, well, wait a minute. Do you get all that from that one verse? <laughs> from that one verse, you get chopping the Bible up into different dispensations, which I get the word dispensations in the Bible four times, but that's not how the word is used. You're using that word. That's a Bible word but you're not using it the way the Bible does. So now you're going to go and you're going to read that one verse, and then you're going to teach me about seven dispensations, but yet there's no reference to that anywhere in 2 Timothy 2. In 2 Timothy, the word dispensation is not even in 2 Timothy. Any of the four places where the word dispensation is used, we don't see anything about seven dispensations. So again, this is a system somebody came up with, and you need Bible to prove it, and you just insert of that one verse. How about to figure out what rightly dividing is, we look at the context. We look at what the passage is talking about. I won't go expound through it all, but the chapter is all about preserving good doctrine. He starts out telling Timothy, the things that you've learned, teach them to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You need to be a good soldier. It's a battle. It's work. And so he says in verse 14, of these things, Put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord. They strive not about words, no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Then he gets into study, show that self-approved. This is what it means. He's telling Timothy, you're going to have to put in the work yourself. And I have learned so much from other people, and I'm thankful for that. We should always learn from other people. Read books, do all that stuff. But at the end of the day, nobody can rightly divide for you. Nobody can be the workman for you. And that's what people often are looking for when they're looking for a systematic theology 
they're wanting to find somebody who's done the work already for them. Mm. And then they will just echo whatever they say. That does not work. God gave us his book for us to learn the things we need to learn about him. And while these other books, they can have some help in some areas, at the end of the day, you can't bypass putting in the work yourself. Right. It does take a great deal of effort. And so along with your studying of the scriptures and putting the work into learning what all the Bible has to say, go ahead and supplement it with some of these other things. But too many people are just letting other men do the work for them and all their systems have flaws. I've got a book in here, right here. This was the same semester we did Dispensational Truth. I still have that. It's right here. We did Advanced Principles of Biblical or, or Principles of Biblical or Hermeneutics. And here's the thing. Now that I have been studying the Bible myself for years, every single one of these principles, there's exceptions. There's exceptions to these things. And so there's some good principles in here. But at the end of the day, if somebody comes along and blindly follows each one of these principles, they're going to make some massive errors. And I think the writer understood that. But when you've done the work yourself, you understand why certain things aren't going to fit. But too many people have not done the work themselves. And then what they'll do, they'll take a passage from the Bible and then they will apply a principle of biblical hermeneutics and then declare, I know it's right because I use this principle. Yeah, but you know, if you actually had a fuller understanding of the Bible yourself, you would understand why that principle doesn't apply in this situation. So at the end of the day, rightly divide. Study is the key. You need to study. To rightly divide and learn from other people, but nobody's going to do this work for you. Yeah, no, I think that's good. And I think it's kind of what we said earlier. It's like systematic theology or reading other people's work and stuff. I agree with the way you put it there. That can be a supplement to your own study. But if you're using those things as a replacement for your own study, then you're not doing what what is being instructed there in First Timothy chapter 2. So it's a big leap to use that one verse to then suddenly chop up the Bible into nine, nine different sections there, which, you know, which what they have to do though, because they claim there's multiple gospels, but I'm getting ahead of myself. That'll be the last one we end on in terms of the three different topics here. Let's shift into the church in Israel. This is also a very important one. There's actually a, I don't know if I have it on my, yeah, I have this little book here on my bookshelf. It's a expository dictionary of new Testament words. And then I also have, let's put this here for now. I got a couple of different books that define different terms and define different theology that I got from my dad. And my dad was a pastor and he grew up in non-denominational churches that were essentially Baptist, but heavily dispensational. So I'm like reading through all these books that I, I kind of inherited from him. And a lot of them, when you get to the part of like covenant theology or dispensationalism, that is like the thing they spend the most time talking about, that we need to avoid arguments that replace Israel with the church. And so they'll come to people like me or people like you who are rejecting dispensationalism and say, well, because a lot of times we'll say, well, the things you're looking for to be promises that were given to Israel, they weren't fulfilled. And if you try to say they've been fulfilled by Jesus or that they're being fulfilled through the church or anything but Israel, as in the physical nation of Israel, they'll say, nope, that's replacement theology. And then they try to bash us on the head with that. Some people even go as far as call you anti-Semitic if you're trying to 
Even though I think there are passages that clearly, if we read Romans 9, if we read Galatians 3 and 4, to me, it's just like what the Bible plainly says. <laughs> anyway, I've given a little bit of an introduction there to map out the territory. So what do you say in terms of the hard line that dispensationalists are trying to draw to distinguish the church and the earthly nation of Israel and to basically say that these are two different groups of God's chosen people, essentially, and we would say God's not broken his promise, he's fulfilled it. Explain to people what your arguments are and what we mean by these things. Yeah. Well, when it comes to the subject, that's one area where we have a major disagreement with anyone who identifies as dispensational. We have different beliefs and different thoughts on Israel. Sometimes our differences are a matter of semantics, and sometimes they're not even really a disagreement. But here is where there's a disagreement and that is on the subject of Israel. And one of the things that I've just learned, there are so many questions dispensationalists, not only do they not ask, they can't possibly answer. And so what they have done is they have changed what it actually means to be Israel. The more I am challenged, the more my position just gets strengthened and the more of an attack I have. So like lately, kind of the tactic I've been using on these people is like, well, what does it mean to be of Israel? Is it an ethnicity? Is it a bloodline? Because that creates a lot of problems because what about Ishmael? What about the sons of Keturah? What about Esau? I don't think it's about a bloodline. What about the people who became Jews and Esther? What about Caleb? Who he was, Kenazite, I believe it was. He became a Jew. It was never about a bloodline. What did it mean to be of Israel? And so what they do in their minds, and Baptists are the worst at this. Baptists have something they want to preach, and then they go look to the Bible to see if they can find some scripture to back it up. Yep. And so the Baptists want to believe that the UN creation from 1948 is in fact Israel. Okay. And they want to talk about that and they want to support it. They want to stand with the Republicans and all these things. But wait a minute, what makes that nation Israel? What makes any nation Israel? And It's amazing the most basic things that they do not understand. For example, Israel was an individual. He was a man. God gave the land to Abraham. The Bible explicitly tells us that Abraham gave everything that he had to Isaac. He gave gifts to Ishmael and the sons of Keturah, but the inheritance went to Isaac, not Ishmael, not the sons of Keturah. Isaac passed the blessing on to Jacob. Now, Jacob stole it. But he got it. And then Jacob never gave that blessing to anybody. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. The land of Israel was Israel's. The nation of Israel is Israel, the man. It's not just the name. It's not just a name like America. He's a person. So the sons of Israel, in order for them to be of that nation, they have to follow their father, Israel. Just like in America, we don't, we're not just an American because we were born in a geographic location. That is part of it, simply because our country does have a constitution, and it states that if you're born in this land, then you are a citizen. But we have documentation, we have a constitution, we have laws. And so Israel did as well. And Israel commanded his sons to, when he's blessing his 12 sons, he put Judah in charge of his brethren. They were but he was a judicial head of, over his people. He was to judge his brother and they were to follow him 
And he said, the scepter shall not depart, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Everyone agrees that's a messianic prophecy about Jesus Christ. Therefore, Israel commanded all of his children to follow after Christ. Mm. So for them to not follow Christ and accept Christ is to break themselves off of the covenant. They will be disinherited by the one God gave the land to, Israel. So they've got to listen to their father. There's a way to stay in that covenant. They've got to follow Jesus. We have the law of Moses. They were under the law of Moses. What did Moses tell them? Moses said, a prophet shall the Lord raise up unto you from among your brethren, like unto me, unto him she hearken. And he prophesied that any who would not listen to that prophet would be cut off from the people. The law of Moses, which was the law of Israel, said to follow that prophet that was Jesus Christ. So there's ways that we can legally renounce our citizenship. If I was to move out of the United States and all my family moved out of the United States, and then 1,800 years from now, my descendants all decide we're going to go move back because we're Americans because of our father. Well, no, we're not. We didn't remain under the Constitution. We did not remain under the law that was in that land. Therefore, we're not Americans anymore. And so we have a group of people in 1948. They want to go back to Israel, supposedly. And they claim to be of Israel because they say they descend from Abraham, but they don't have faith like Abraham. Right. They're not following Shiloh like Israel commanded them to do. They're not obeying the law of Moses and following after Christ and doing whatever he says to do. So these people, they have no claim. But the people who are claiming they are Israel today, it's based only on genetics. And it was never genetics. Never made you of Israel. In fact, Romans 2 tells us that he is not a Jew that is one outwardly, yep. but he is a Jew that is one inwardly. Romans 9 says, for they are not all Israel that are of Israel. And he said that too, because he brought up the fact that he had sorrow that his nation was not saved, but he, he didn't want him to think that the word of God had taken none effect because let me clarify, they are not all Israel that are of Israel. They're of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted for the seed. During Paul's day, the Jews had made a really big deal about their pedigrees and stuff, but they didn't have faith. So the reality was Jesus told them that they weren't even Abraham's children because they weren't doing the works of Abraham. They wanted to kill him. He said, this did not Abraham. So it is a bizarre foreign concept to claim that a group of people who can't even prove they descend from Abraham, they don't have their genealogies. In Nehemiah, after they had been gone for 70 years, there were some priests that didn't have a record of gene their genealogy and they were considered polluted and they were put from the priesthood. So yeah. everybody said, well, no, God's got to fulfill these promises. No, the promises are fulfilled through Christ. He was Abraham's seed. He was the yeah. heir. What Galatians 3 and 4 says. It's so clear right there. And then they, Romans 9, like you brought up, I see dispensationalists argue from Romans 11 a lot, and they say, Romans 11 is describing how God's going to graft Israel back in, and this is prophesied in Zechariah 12 and 14. And I'm like, well, hold on. You didn't read all of Romans 11 because no. it, it'll be grafted back in, but there's a conditional clause after that where he says, if they do not 
continue in their unbelief. So, because yep. Paul's not going to be in conflict with himself. He's not going to, in Romans 9, say, not all are Israel who are of Israel, and it's by faith. And then later in Romans 11, be like, ah, but that, just kidding. They'll, they'll all be saved in the end anyway, just because of their ethnicity. It's like, no, he's saying they'll be saved, but only if they do not continue in their disbelief, which echoes what you said in terms of the original instructions given by Jacob or Israel to his sons and in the law of Moses itself saying that foreshadowing Christ and saying that you will have to follow after him. Right. So it's always been that way. Yep. Believers in Christ, what they have done is they have followed the instructions of Israel and have followed after Shiloh. They have placed themselves under the law of Moses in the sense, one, that we have acknowledged our sin. Because remember what Paul said, I think it was in Romans 3, he said, do we make void the law because of grace? And we establish the law. When we admit we're sinners, we are recognizing that we are under God's law and we are in violation of that law. And so when we, when we believe on Christ, what we're doing is we're recognizing the fact that Jesus is that prophet that was prophesied that would come that would take away sins, the sins that we did against the law. He is the sacrifice. His blood is the atonement for our sins. And so when a person believes on Christ, in reality, they're submitting to the law of Moses in the sense of we're recognizing that we are guilty of it, but we are acknowledging that there is only one acceptable payment for sins. And it's not us reforming ourselves or doing some good works. It's us acknowledging Jesus as the Christ and the atonement for sins. And so when we do that, in reality, we are putting ourselves, if we're putting ourselves under the law of Moses, if we're doing what Israel commanded his sons to do, it wouldn't make us a part of that nation. I mean, I get it. We weren't born into it. We weren't born into that nation. But understand the people that were born in Israel and that were born in the covenant could also be cut off from the covenant. But in Isaiah, Jesus prophesied about the eunuchs that keep his Sabbaths and all these people. He said, I'm not going to be able to quote the passage exactly, but I'm going to give them a name better than that of children, one that will not be cut off. And that's what happened with us when we got saved. We weren't natural born into that. We were born again. But once you're born again, you cannot be cut off from it. And so that's the difference between, in between us and Israel. Now, those who identify as Israel now, they were never a part of the olive tree. That was a specific generation that applied to the people today. They were never a part of the olive tree. They need to get saved exactly like we do. But yeah, that's how this stuff works. And so in, in dispensational land, we just ignore all these things. And, and many people, act like many things about salvation are still a mystery when actually they're not. They've been revealed. Paul told us these things aren't a mystery anymore. They've been revealed. One of the mysteries that was revealed is how God would include the Gentiles in the covenant. And yep, I get it. When you're reading the Old Testament, it looks like it's just going to be Israel. When you read the New Testament, it's like, wait a minute, Gentiles are included. But the reality is the Old Testament's still right because wait a minute, being of Israel, it's not a flesh thing. It's a spirit thing. So yeah, we are part of that nation if you're born again, and you'll never be cut off from it. And that's better. And so 
again, I was born in this country, but there's ways I could revoke my citizenship. I'm not really sure what the process is, and I don't want to. I like being an American, but there is a method to that. And there was a way to quit being of Israel. And the way, and one of the ways that was specifically said is if you don't follow that prophet, like unto Moses, you're going to be cut off from the people. And so those of Israel who rejected Christ ceased being of Israel. Those who descended from those people later were never of Israel. Yeah. And conversely, there was a way to, you could denounce being part of Israel or you could become part of Israel. As you mentioned, one of my favorite references to someone becoming part of Israel is Rahab and she becomes a ancestor to the Christ. And first of all, you wouldn't make that up, right? Like no one's going to make up like our king and our Lord was descended from a prostitute who converted to Judaism, right? So that's always been the case. And there's something about what we're keying in on here that you're raising up with your arguments is that there's something in dispensationalist theology that almost lends itself towards the sort of like Jewish objections to Jesus as Messiah. Because the way dispensationalists look at Old Testament prophecy is they're like looking at it as if it has to be literally fulfilled in the way that like the Jews expected it to be fulfilled. If you've ever encountered, and like my family is actually heavily Jewish on my dad's side. And so I'm very familiar with the Jewish objections to Christ. And like that's kind of a major part of the the footstool of the foundation of their arguments against Jesus is, well, he didn't literally fulfill the prophecies. For example, or they'll say that there are fake prophecies that the New Testament says Jesus fulfilled. Like when in Matthew, I think in like chapter two, he quotes from Hosea saying from out of Egypt, I called my son. And they're like, well, that's not a messianic passage. And I was like, well, no, like maybe not on its face, but the point is, look at what Jesus did. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, then has to escape to Egypt and then is called back and then is in the wilderness. And then he becomes the royal priest that Israel was called to be. So, And this is then what Galatians 3 and 4 talks about where Jesus is the Israel of God because he succeeded where Israel failed. And that's what is being foreshadowed in a prophetic way in that quotation of Hosea there. But dispensationalists, almost with their rhetoric, would have to side with the Jews in saying, well, no, we can't read Old Testament prophecy that way. So it's like they don't see how they're almost undermining the foundation of our faith with this sort of way of looking at Israel and the Old Testament. I think the only way they can square it is this last point or objection we're getting to is they have to basically claim that there are multiple gospels. They have to say essentially that, well, Jesus came for the Jews, but then Paul had a different gospel and he came for the Gentiles. And they have, they quote Romans 11 for Paul, where he says in verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am apostle for the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. Then they quote Jesus in Matthew 15, where there's the Canaanite woman who cries after him, asking to have mercy on her. And he said that I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. He answered and said, it is not me to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. And she said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their masters. And Jesus said unto her, woman, great is thy faith be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole that very hour. 
which is a beautiful passage there, but they say, well, that just proves that like Jesus came for the Jews and then like maybe there's secondary benefits for the Gentiles, but his ministry was for the Jews and Paul is for the Gentiles. And so we have at least two gospels. I know some dispensationalists claim there are even as many as three or four gospels. So, which I don't know, it's like we keep quoting Galatians here and I feel like I don't know how dispensationalists contend with the book of Galatians. I'm surprised the Schofield Bible doesn't just rip it out <laughs> completely. Yeah. It, but anyway, respond to some of that and that idea of the multiple gospels and using those passages in that way. Yeah. Now, listen, I just did, I released a podcast today where I talked about sensationalism, improv, seeing in the IFB, and, and BAPs are really bad about using sensationalism, okay? I am not being sensational here. This is my honest goodness testimony. So Galatians 3, 1 says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ benevolently set forth crucified among you? Now, without a doubt, the people who had bewitched them were Jews. They were people trying to bring them back under the things of the law. Now, you said it. Like, people, they are desperate for the Jews. Okay, and it's like, wait, you don't understand. First off, God already fulfilled his promises to the Jews through Christ. We just need to preach Christ to these people. But they are so desperate for the Jews to basically receive the inheritance. And they and the Jews, like the older brother of the prodigal, hated that the prodigal is being loved and accepted by the father. That's what's going on right now with us Gentiles. We are that younger brother that has come home and the older brother is upset about it. And dispensationalists are mad with the older brother for some reason. And it's because they have been bewitched by these people. They have literally been bewitched, 1948, bewitched an entire generation of people with very rare exception. And when I started, when I came around on this subject, I, I promise you, I read Galatians 3 and 4 one day. After I had come to the conclusion that the Jews are not God's chosen people. All of a sudden, I read Galatians 3 and 4, and I could have swore I was reading two new chapters of my Bible. <laughs> I felt like, I, I, I'm not kidding. I sat there, and I'm reading this, and I, it was like I had never read those chapters before. Wow. It's just like, <laughs> I'm like, these chapters were not in my Bible. But like you said, <laughs> they just avoid it. And I can't get dispensationalists to talk about Galatians 3 and 4. It's like it's still not in their Bible. And I know it's there. I can open up their Bible and it, it's in there, but it's like they've been bewitched to where they cannot see those chapters and the clarity of those chapters. When I tell people that the Muslims or that the Jews are of Ishmael, they look at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, I stole that from the apostle Paul. That's in Galatians 4. He said that, and in fact, I've done it this way before with dispensationalists. I won't even go to Galatians 4. I'll go to Genesis and I'll go to the story where Ishmael is mocking Isaac. And I will say how that, what that is, that's a picture of how the Jews, Ishmael, persecuted Isaac, the Christians. And they look at me like I'm crazy. And then I was like, I got that from Paul. Paul said that. And they'll read Galatians 4 and the, I, I don't see it. It's spelled out. So, it's these people, they have been bewitched by the Jews. They are fascinated with them. They, they try learning from their rabbis who can't even figure out who the Messiah is. They're literally supporting. They are anxious for them to rebuild their temple, which is spitting in the face of Jesus Christ 
Hmm. who ended the sacrifice with his body. These same people who practiced the Lord's Supper that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ, these same people who pretend they are giving reverence to the Lord's Supper will are supportive of an abomination of a, another temple. When God had the last one destroyed because he was done with it, when God said no more sacrifices for sin, they are anxious to see it go back up. And you know, a lot of it's because they think it's going to help them get raptured out of here or something, which is ridiculous. But listen, even if you think that has to happen to fulfill some prophecy, you should recognize the fact that to build another temple is an abomination. And it is wicked. And I think the world probably will unite around the rebuilding of another temple someday. But I believe it will be the world uniting around Antichrist and against Jesus Christ. And so it... These Baptists, they're good people. I, I, I grew up around independent fundamental Baptists. They're some of the best people I know. But when it gets to the subject of eschatology in Israel, they lose their minds. They have been bewitched in this area. And we've got Baptist churches where preachers are going out wearing lapel pins with an American and an Israeli flag on it. There's Baptist churches that have Israeli flags on their platforms. Mm. I mean, this is it's scary stuff. Yeah. And I can't think of a better word to describe what's going on with these people, then they are bewitched. That's all there is to it. Yeah. No, it, 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 and it's just, it's sad. I mean, it's it like, I, I look at the gospel as this source of joy and hope in my life. And I just don't know how, it dis, it, it, I feel like dispensationalists by and large actually just don't think very critically about their beliefs. A lot of people are just like you said, they're just following a systematic theology that's being taught by their church, that was taught to them by their parents. And so maybe it doesn't really rob them of joy and hope in the gospel. Like I wouldn't say that they're not saved, but it's like, I feel like if they were to actually think really critically about it, it'd be like, it, it just dilutes the impact of what Jesus Christ did. It dilutes the impact of the gospel message to, to say that there's more than one gospel and to, to and to not be able to read Galatians and come away, one, encouraged by what Christ has done. And then two, the, the stress of the importance that Paul says that there is no other gospel that can save. And he doesn't like add a caveat after that, be like, oh, for the Gentiles, I mean. Right. 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 It's for Jews and Gentiles. There is no other person. There's no other being that can save other than Jesus Christ. Uh, and that right. should be a source of great hope for us. That should encourage us to, now that, and that's not anti-Semitic. It'd be anti-Semitic if you said the Jews should not receive the good news of the gospel. But I know you and I would agree that no, the Jews, as much as anyone else, need to be preached the good news of the gospel. And if anything, we're doing Jews a disservice when we pretend we don't need to preach the good news of the gospel to yep. them. And when we suggest they don't need to be saved, th that could almost be argued to be a, a sort of twisted form of anti-Semitism. I wouldn't do that, but you know, it's almost a reverse, it's a subversion of what they're trying to do. Right. Um, we don't have a problem with their genetics. It's, that's right. the thing. It's not <laughs> a genetic thing. It's a belief system. And think about this. Okay, that word bewitched, the definition means to malign. That is to fascinate by false representations, bewitch. And look at how fascinated people are with the Jews. And they will just, whatever the Jews say about themselves, they believe. For example, I heard, I've heard several preachers, even recently, talk about, isn't it amazing all they've been through over the last 2,000 years, and yet they've been able to maintain their culture, maintain their lineage. Wait a minute. 
Where's the proof? I just keep asking people, where's the proof of that? No one can prove their ancestry that far back. They can't do it. No, and they don't, most of them don't even, I don't even think most of them even claim to, but people will just tell you that they can. And, and two, when it comes to witchcraft, all right, obviously I don't know much about witchcraft. I don't really want to know much about witchcraft, but it, I, I do know with bewitching and witchcraft, they will use things, maybe a talisman, maybe a, a symbol, maybe a, a potion. And they use these people and, and these things, they put them together and then it, it has some power over people. Now, here's a question. Is there a real power there or is it power of suggestion, right? Well, the thing is, it, either way, it's real. It affects people's behavior. And no matter what you show these people, the Bible says, one of the reasons they will not come around is because they've been bewitched and they are terrified if they do something, say something against the Jews, that they will be cursed based on a horrible interpretation of Genesis 12, three that I just released a video about today. They are terrified. They will be cursed if they do anything against Israel. And that just shows they are bewitched. Okay. I, 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 you dispensationalists, I, I love you, but you are under a spell. You are literally under a spell. Allow Galatians three and four to break that spell. Yeah. And, and, and then I think the gospel is the most important part of this conversation. Another important thing that this touches on, like, and sort of the preface of what I was talking about at the beginning, is that this then leads to, and you just mentioned this, we can't be critical of Israel, right? And so when things are happening in current events, even if someone just has the position, like on the Republican stage of like, well, I support Israel's right to exist, to defend themselves, but we shouldn't fund them. That's viewed as like a heresy. It's almost well, like a mm -hmm. it's like we reverted back to Catholicism and someone just like violated some like holy dogma and needs to be excommunicated. Like they're not a real conservative or a real Republican or whatever if they don't support Israel. Or and by support they mean like enthusiastically be cheering on Israel to basically do whatever it takes to achieve their goals in the region of Gaza. And it's like, you know what? Beyond getting into a debate over the history of Israel and the Palestinians and all that, because that's complex and that's like a whole other conversation, Christians should at least be mindful of like, hey, there are Christians living in Gaza. Like, so even if we're just looking at this from like a perspective of like, I don't know, self-interest, like there are I mean, there were, actually, I should preface this. There were thousands of, of Christians living in Gaza. One of the oldest Christian churches in the world is, is, is in that region. But at the time as we're recording this, I know that the number of people living there who are Christians has been dwindling. And to even, like, to even suggest, like, hey, I don't think we should be funding Israel, we being the United States. And two, I think Israel has a right to go after the terrorists, but we shouldn't support like an indiscriminate bombing campaign or killing of people in that region because a there are innocent people there being inculcated and fellow christians fellow believers and two are but at the very least it's one thing to accept in war that like accidents happen and things like that it's another thing to cheer cheer that on and i see too many christians especially in the dispensationalist camp or because of dispensationalist influence 
who are basically like cheering on war. It's one thing to acknowledge war. It might be inevitable, might be necessary. It's another thing to cheer on the death of innocent people. It, it would, it's wrong when people celebrate, like there are people who are anti-Semitic who celebrate October 7th. And like, yeah, they killed a bunch of Jews. That's wrong. I'm just suggesting it's wrong on the other side as well. Like the, the, the name of this podcast, Biblical Anarchy, is kind of an allusion to the fact that we, like this is not our home. And as much as like, I agree with you, I, I enjoy living in America, but my allegiance isn't to uh, a flag or to a, a country, it's to the kingdom of God. And I don't, when I view people across the world, I don't view them through the lens of my American identity. I view them through the lens of my identity in Christ. And I, I see people who, uh, they don't need bombs dropped on them. They need the gospel preached to them. They, and even though, listen, I'll know this and let you respond. I, I'm not naive. I understand wars will continue until Christ returns. But but if we believe in Christ as Emmanuel, God with us, the Prince of Peace, the the hope of nations, right? Like we believe that one of the things that Jesus will do is bring an end to, to violence and, and bring peace to all people. And our prayer and hope in this world should be towards disarming conflict. You actually, that's one, I, I listened to, I think it was the sermon you gave around Christmas and you kind of made a similar argument. You were like, listen, like nations are at enmity with each other. And to some extent, this is going to continue. But should that be what we're encouraging? Or should we be hopeful and even like pray praying for and advocating for tensions to go down and people to talk and negotiate rather than escalate into further conflict? So, but you know, I think some, when there was the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, you could be a Republican or a conservative or a Christian and call for a ceasefire there or say Americans shouldn't fund that. But as soon as it switched to Israel, that whole dynamic changed. And it's like you said, it's because people are, I think for the most part, it's because people are afraid of being called anti-Semitic or because maybe worse, they're afraid that like if they oppose Israel, that they're opposing God. So what are your responses to those things I just said? Yeah. Blessed are the peacemaker. That applies all the time, except for involved when it involves Israel. Then we want more as long as they're winning it. But right. yeah, well, what's driving these people, one, it's bad eschatology. They think that Israel getting the land somehow is going to help usher in the coming of Christ. And that's just stupid. And it's, it's deathly stupid. They're, they are encouraging the death of a lot of people because of bad eschatology. And it's sad. I mean, Baptists were call, calling on Netanyahu to make God turn Gaza into a parking lot. Uh, it, it, it absolutely blows my mind. But again, part of that too is because they think the Israel of 1948 is the same as the Israel of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see God telling them to go in and wipe everybody out and all that kind of stuff. And so in their minds, that's justified in Israel. It's, it's funny how when it comes to Israel, the dispensations never change, apparently. It's, they're still in that <laughs> right. dispensation and supposed to be conquered land, even though in Hebrews, it says, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Right. So the writer of Hebrews told them, let's follow Christ without the camp. That's outside the temple area. That's outside the temple mount. Bearing his reproach, for here we have no continuing city, we seek one to come. What are the dispensationalists telling Jews today? Now what the writer of Hebrews was telling, they're telling them, Go back to the land. There are, I know Baptist preachers, they are encouraging, trying to help facilitate 
and they're going to other countries or they preach to Jews to return to the land. That only gets them farther away from Christ. And honestly, I wish, I wish Jews or Muslims, either one, I don't even care which one. I prefer Jews so the Christians will shut up, but either way, but you know, I'm fine either way. I just wish they leave. They don't need that land. That land is completely unnecessary. It's, it has no spiritual value. Jesus told the woman at the well that the time was coming where they're not going to say worship in this mouth. Right. Or the father, you know, they're going to worship him in spirit and the truth. That's what the father is seeking for. And we can do that today. You know why? Because we don't need a temple to cleanse us and sanctify us anymore. Jesus Christ has cleansed us and sanctified us through his blood. He's given us the, the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we are prepared every day to do the service of God because of what Jesus Christ did. And it's that's so much better. And so, yes, there was a period of time, and I'm going to be talking about this tomorrow night for our Wednesday night sermon. There was a period of time when Jesus was preaching to these people and he was going to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But that's just because he was fulfilling all Probably. things that were prophesied of in the law. Yeah. But let me ask you, did Israel follow Christ? Were they? <laughs> no. Obviously, no. They disobeyed him. They killed the Messiah. They did a bunch of stuff they weren't supposed to do. Now, God always knew it was going to happen that way. It was always going to be the cross. Ever, It was always going to be the cross. But either way, God did still give them a law, and that law had an end game to it, I guess you could say. And the reality is, the end game of the law was there is no end game. There was going to be priests forever, sacrifices forever. forever. You know, that's how it works out of the law. I'm going to talk about that on, on Wednesday. But what Christ brought in was so much better. Exactly. Because yeah. once and for all. So what, what people are doing when they tell us, y'all are claiming God broke his promised Israel. No, we're not. <laughs> God gave them something better. Why, exactly. why do they need that? Why do they need that land? Why do they need the Temple Mount? Everything that the Temple Mount did for them, Jesus Christ did does. it permanently. Yep. So he guess what? He kept his promise. Oh, the Bible says keep Passover forever. Uh, yeah, I know that's yeah, what we, the law said. <laughs> Christ is our Passover. Right. <laughs> so what the Passover accomplished. But And in reality, never would accomplish. Jesus, in Hebrews, it says that the sacrifices couldn't make them perfect or complete, but the sacrifice of Christ did. So if they, if they would have stayed under that system, they would have had to do these things forever. So when Christ came and he did all these things once, and then he went and sat down at the right hand of the Father, mission accomplished, promise kept. and But Israel... Unfortunately, they didn't have faith, but many of them did. A remnant did. There was a remnant according to the election of grace. And Gentiles were included in that. And we are a part of that. But what, yeah, so what they're claiming God is going to do for Israel in the future, based off Old Testament prophecies, they are looking for the inferior fulfillment. Just go on Esau sometime and type in the word better and then go to Hebrews. And look at how many times that word is used. A better yep. covenant, better promises, better sacrifices, better priesthood. Everything's better. And so when they're saying God broke his promise to Israel, 
That would be like if I promised you $10 and then later I gave you 100 and then you tried to tell me I broke my promise to you because I didn't give you $10. Right. It's just like, I gave you something better. And so, or if I came and I offered you the $100 and then you slapped it away and then you're like, no, you didn't keep your promise because you didn't give me 10. It's like, no, I tried to give you something even better. You refused it. That's on you. And so, yep. you mentioned but then Calvinist, in God's grace, he continues it, to extend it. It's like they've no. rejected it and then the offer is still there and then they continue to reject it. But then, but God's broke. This is why Paul says in Romans 9, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And says right. everything you're basically saying. It's like, because this was always, it's always been by faith. It says that there's, I forget the chapter in Hebrews where it's like that refrain by faith, where he's going through all the different figures in Old Testament and says that they were righteous and they were delivered by God and that they accomplished great things through God working in them. But it never says like through their adherence to the law or because of their Jewish ethnicity or bloodline. It was by faith. It's always, that's the, so it's like, we have two choices. Are there all these different dispensations and covenants and gospels at play? Like, is, is God's plan this like spinning 10 different plates in the air at once? Or can we go back to even the beginning of Genesis where it's prophesied that the offspring of Eve will crush the serpent to the end in the, the, the book of Revelation, and can we just actually say, you know what? This is one cohesive narrative of God's plan to redeem mankind and a covenant of grace that started in Genesis and then was fulfilled in Christ and that is still available for us today. Like, and then why would we yeah. go back to a earthly... I mean, I'm not we as Gentiles, but I guess the Jews. Like, why would God offer so, something so much greater to the Gentiles that like, hey, the kingdom of God isn't this like earthly thing to be sought after, but it's within you. It's here. It's being ushered in now. And it's so much greater. So the earthly kingdom of Israel is this pale foreshadowing of the greater and true kingdom of God. Why would we go back? Like you said, like that, that just, I, I don't know. It, it, it baffles me completely. Yeah. Well, dispensations are making the same mistake that the Jews did. The Jews, they were so consumed with earthly things. And it yeah. became all about the, it came all about the possessions and they were very impressed with their buildings and their temple that they had made. And it's an interesting story when you look in, in Ezra and when they rebuilt the temple after the Babylonian destruction and how the young men shouted, but the old men wept. And we see in Haggai that it was clear that the new temple they built was inferior. Yeah. But God through the prophet Haggai, basically to paraphrase what he said, he basically said, you know what, don't worry about this temple. It's going to exceed the former one in glory because the desire of nations is going to come and he is going to fill this temple. And therefore, God is not impressed with what man can do with his creation, but he yeah. is well pleased in his beloved son. And so what made the temple special was Jesus. And the reality is the temple on earth didn't do anything. Jesus did all the things of the temple and he went and he offered his blood on the mercy seat in heaven. And so these earthly things that they are focusing on, these were earthly things God promised them so, to, so, so he could preserve them as a people until the seed would come that the promises were made to. And so when Christ came and he fulfilled all these things, mission accomplished. Now something better is coming, a new Jerusalem, 
you know, is coming. And oh, and by the way, in the new heaven and new earth, John said, and I saw no temple therein. You know what? We don't need a temple. Jesus is there though. Jesus accomplished. So the thing is, this need for the land and all these things that they insist that the Jews get, they're forgetting. Wait, no, they had a land for a reason. It served a purpose. Right. But the purpose that those things served, Jesus Christ finished those things. So why are we looking for these inferior earthly things? Why are we looking for the weak and the beggarly elements as the apostle Paul called them? It's absolutely foolish. And it's a disservice to everyone, to, yeah. to Christian. They're not teaching who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ, but it's ultimately a disservice to the Jews because we're telling them, hey, you're special because God's got something coming for you. And oh, and by the way, it's actually inferior to what we have. And right. in reality, it, it's not coming back. So it, it is, it's the most, if I was anti-Semitic, I'd be a dispensationalist. Right. Because That's kind of what I was Jews. saying. You could almost flip that narrative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if I hated Jews, then I would be a dispensationalist because then I could say all kinds of great stuff about the Jews while leading those people straight to hell. Right. Oh, and gosh. I can't think of a better way to do that than through dispensationalism and Zionism. Yeah. Go fight for that land. It's going to get a bunch of you killed. It's going to accomplish nothing for you spiritually. If I hated Jews, I'd be a Zionist. Yeah. No, I 100% agree with that. Pastor, we're running a little short on time here, but I've greatly enjoyed uh, our conversation here. As, as we come to a close, uh, give any closing thoughts you have. If you have any, you kind of gave a little bit of closing thoughts there, but any closing thoughts in terms of the discussion on dispensationalism, on Zionism, and things like that. And then, of course, and I'll have links in the show notes, but go ahead and plug uh, everything you got going on with your podcasts. And if any of my listeners are in your area, of course, they can. <laughs> I would encourage them to check out your church. So uh, anyway, the floor is yours here before we close out. Yeah, so look up our YouTube channel, Liberty Baptist Church of Rock Falls or the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. I've got those two different YouTube channels. And don't let people virtue signal you away from accepting the truth about these things. All they've got is name calling, ad hominem. They're going to call you anti-Semitic, but reality is reality. Bible is Bible. And somebody's got to preach the truth about this stuff. And there is an awakening. There is an awakening going on in a lot of your evangelical world, in the Baptist world especially. These people are very loyal. They're very loyal to the dead men that unfortunately led them astray in these areas. But people are waking up. We've got a new generation that's coming that hasn't been infected by these things. And a lot of the stuff that's been happening even since October 7th, I think they're, I think they're losing ground on this. Yeah. The, originally, the dispensationalists, Boy, did they run their mouths and they were demanding I shut mine because of all these horrible things that were going on. It's like, you, you, I listen, I've been running my mouth the last several years. You think I'm going to shut up now while this is going on? You're crazy. And you know what? I didn't have to change a thing that I've been saying because what I'm teaching is from the Bible and therefore it is timeless. What these people are saying is based on current events and they do. They sound like warmongering Nikki Haley type Republicans <laughs> and it makes me sick. And, and I'm not ashamed. To, to call that out. Doesn't mean I hate these people. I do love them. I wish somebody would have slapped me upside the head with this stuff a little bit earlier. But yeah, you know, either way, these are important truths. And we've been called to be honest with the scriptures. I'm going to give an account for what I preach. I'm going to give an account to God. 
not going to give an account to the Baptists or anybody in internet land. I'm going to give an account to God. So I'm going to keep preaching this way. And so any support and encouragement you can give to those teaching the truth, yeah, like, share, subscribe. We need to be the dominant voices out there. And so if you can help with that, I'd appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much again, Pastor, for coming on tonight. Uh, it's so good to talk about these things with someone who, again, everyone's going to have a little bit they disagree on, but this was really good to dive into a lot of stuff we do agree on. And to ultimately, as we said, I mean, in opposing this bad theology, I hope we're showing people how they need to go back into the scripture and do that work for themselves, like we said earlier, to, to do the actual work of rightly dividing scripture. And then those right conclusions they are what help us become better ambassadors for Christ. And that's, I think, what we should be focusing on. And I hope that our conversation has been edifying to the people listening to encourage them to do those things. So everyone listening, thank you for tuning in. Please, of course, go check out that entire series on dispensationalism and every, and also check in on the other things that Pastor Tommy is, Mercury's talking about on his channels. Even when I, even when, again, even when I disagree with him, I enjoy hearing his perspective. It's well-researched, it's well-thought-out, and it, it, it's certainly well worth the listen. So that's all we have for you guys today. And we'll be talking to you again next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.